Well, it has been raining. Haven't you noticed? It's been raining. If you're not from Washington, then you don't know that this means it's winter. Uh, I, I travel around different places. I go to California, and I just love the California weather. I feel like the mold finally starts to dry out off of me, you know, after living here my whole life. But this is our winter. It's rain, and they say, well, how long does it rain? Well, it never stops, but pretty much November all the way till May... It will rain every single day, and if it doesn't rain, there'll be fog, and if there's not fog, it'll drizzle, and maybe, maybe, maybe we'll have one day or two with no rain. We're used to it. They tell us that the Northwest has the most depressed people in the whole nation. I believe it. I think it's true. I think it's terrible. I hate the rain. Uh, They say you get used to it. I meet people like my wife who say, I love the rain, and I think you're weird. There's something wrong with you. How can you like rain? I like sunshine. But there are moments in life when it rains on you, you know, when things don't work out the way you wanted them to. You thought they would, and you hoped they would. A story that happened in my life is one, one year... We were planning this big outreach event at our church, and I was really excited about it. We spent thousands of dollars to get ready for this. It was an outdoor event in October. So, right? That's a risk, okay? It's a risk. I knew that. But I had my faith in Christ that He would help us out. After all, we're doing His work, right? We're trying to reach our community. We're having a big carnival open to everybody. It's going to be awesome. If He could, He controls the rain, right? He controls the rain. So, so I know it's going to be sunny that day, right? So all this work, all this preparation, we show up and guess what happened? I get to the church and it's starting to drizzle. And I'm thinking, no, 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 God, you're not going to do this to me. And then it just starts getting worse. It was a complete, total downpour nobody came nobody people from our church came to do what they were supposed to do and we all sat there and soaked i left went into my office and i was enraged at god come on pal how could you do this to me how could you allow this to happen didn't you know we spent three thousand dollars on this and I'm working for you. I'm doing this for you. And you ruined my whole thing. We've all experienced those moments where it doesn't go your way. And occasionally, life will dish you something that you weren't expecting, that you thought, maybe even said, that'll never happen to me. And then it did. Hard things, difficult things, troublesome things, tragic things. And you hear stories about people who respond to those things typically. Typically, and you know, like the first response is like what I had. Oh God, why'd you do this? You hear people say that all the time. I think God's getting blamed for all kinds of things, right? God gets blamed for what the devil does. He gets blamed for what you do. He gets blamed for everything. And so blame God, get mad at other people, this angry response. 
yell out, why me? Why is this happening? That's the typical response. Some people, though, respond amazingly. And it's odd. It's weird. You hear it and you go, wow, you must be out of touch. You know, you're, you're not really in touch with what's going on here. Because if you were, you would respond with a little bit more, you know, uh, this, is, this is troubling to me. Like, like Esther. I told you a story about Esther and how Esther said, I mean, her, she's, in, she's about to be possibly killed in her whole nation. And she says, if I perish, I perish. What an incredible statement. Uh, you see, some people respond really, really differently when it rains on them. And so I've been thinking about this series for a long time, wanting to share this with you because God has revealed to me through the scriptures what I believe is the absolute key as to why some people respond that way and others do not. And it is life-changing information. We believe that God speaks to us through the Bible. God's it's his it's it's revelation it's his words god did not write the bible with his own hand and his own pen he was the author he was uh the inspiration the scriptures are god breathed you think of it like god is the architect okay an architect doesn't actually swing a hammer and build the building but the building is his creation it comes from his mind and his inspiration, all right? That's what the, how the Bible came about, is God is the architect of this. And it is him speaking to us, communicating to us. Now, don't take it lightly and don't take it uh, so uh, casually and carelessly that you're one of those Christians that walks around all the time saying, God told me this and God told me that and God told me to put my pants on backwards today and God told me to get a haircut on 5th Street and God told me where to park my car and all of that. Because that's just stupid. Okay? He's not doing that. God isn't your buddy just walking around whispering to you. If you believe that, then I think we can schedule you for some counseling. All right? That is nuts. Okay? Now, God can speak to us supernaturally. Yes. But that is a miracle. Okay? That happens, as the very nature of it, infrequently. All right? It's not every single morning. Okay? And we speak to God through prayer. Right? He speaks to us through His Word. We speak to Him through prayer. And as you walk in through this life, you develop a greater sensitivity to God speaking to you uh, through His Word and perhaps even directly. Uh, there's, there's this guy named Zia. And uh, Zia was uh, born in Africa and uh, went to, to Cambridge and uh, became a lawyer. Very smart guy and excelled through university and became very successful in life and one day found himself so empty. Like, well, is there more to this life? I've, I've got all the success and anything that I really want could there be more? And so somebody mentioned to him, well, the Bible. So he grabbed the Bible and he did what a lot of people do. Right? I need to find something. 
First Chronicles 5.13. You know what it said? It was a list of names. Great. All right? You ever done that in the, the old flip and point method? It says you will be judged on... You know, you're like, oh, great. <laughs> he did that. Flipped it open. First Chronicles 5.13 is a list of names. So he's reading the list of names, and he gets all his names. This guy, there's Zia. My name's in the Bible. It was weird. Zia. Well, that's not a name you hear often, you know. He didn't know anybody named Zia. How'd my name get in here? There's a guy named Zia. And he said, wow, maybe there's something to this book. You know how the story goes. Eventually, it led him to faith in Christ, and he became a follower of Christ. He looked it up later and and realized that there is no other place in the entire Bible where the name Zia is listed. It's only at 1 Chronicles 5.13. That's the only place where that name is. So don't you see how God can speak to us through the scriptures. So, I believe he'll speak to us today. If you have a Bible, would you please look at Luke chapter 22? We discovered that we are short on Bibles here in the sanctuary, and so we've ordered some new ones. They should be here Wednesday. So if you don't have one, hopefully you can look on with somebody else. And we see here Luke chapter 22. I've got my little clicker here. Oh, I I pushed it too fast. There we go. It's actually written up there, so if you don't have one, you can read that. This is a bizarre story. This is the the, the Last Supper, which we just went through. This is near the end of it. And Jesus is talking with Peter. He says, Simon, and I, how did this come about? It's, I don't know. It, I try and put myself in his shoes. So I'm standing there, the whole thing with Judas. I mean, that's awkward. Um, it's, it's been an amazing three years. My life has been changed. And I come to this point, and Jesus, who I believe is the master, is is the savior, he says to me, by the way, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, doesn't that just grab you? That does not sound right. First of all, that Satan is talking to Jesus, okay, and that's weird, that Satan even knows who Peter is? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you right away say, well, why me? <laughs> why is he picking on me? You know, what's it, what did I do? Uh, he says he's asked permission. And then the, 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 the other bizarre thing is that he was asking permission. Have you, if, you, if you look up what it means to be sifted by, you know, when they sift wheat... It's, they call it thrashing, <laughs> okay? 
That's when they take the wheat and they just beat the living daylights out of that thing to knock off the chaff, which is the unusable part, to get to the good part, the usable part, which is the wheat. Okay? So that's the image that we're getting here, is Satan has been asking Peter to beat the living daylights out of you. And this is Jesus's, as he goes on, he says, uh, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Everybody say faith loudly. Faith. That's also interesting, isn't it? Okay. You know, what's really disturbing about this is what he didn't say. He didn't say, oh, and by the way, Peter, you won't be sifted. Isn't that good news? I prayed for you. Order canceled. He says, and yeah, it's going to happen. You are going to be thrashed. Now that is, uh, put yourself in his shoes. You're Peter. And Jesus comes up to you and says, guess what? You're going to be thrashed. But I have prayed that your faith would remain strong. Not any other thing. I, isn't that interesting? I mean, what if he, he, you would think, well, I have prayed that uh, it wouldn't hurt you very bad. I have prayed that your, you know, your son won't die. I have prayed that, you know, uh, you'll get through this, but you're going to be rich when it's over. So, you know, it'll be worth it. He's, Jesus zeroes in on the one thing that mattered. When it rains in your life, there is only one thing that matters, and that is, is your faith strong enough to hold you through it? Because most people's is not. I uh, read this this week that in Rwanda, the mass genocide of the Rwandan people carried out by Rwandans against Rwandans was done largely by Christians. Yeah, how can that be? What happened was Christianity came to Rwanda and many people received faith but didn't go any deeper. They received salvation and that's it. There was no training. There was no training in righteousness and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And no, They didn't have Bibles. They literally didn't have Bibles. Nobody had read the Bible. They said yes to Christ, but hadn't read the Bible. They didn't know. And so when trials came, they reverted right back to their tribal ways. And began picking up machetes and slaughtering each other. It was a tragic, tragic situation. Um, I'm, I'm going out of order here, so that's why I'm clicking through these. Oh, but it's gone. Where's my toe or toes are click? Now I'm really messed up. Did I, do I have toes on there, John? Well, so I'll, tell, I'll give it to you off memory. It's like this. That when it rains on your life, a trial comes into your life, because your faith is only brain deep, not life deep, 
you immediately revert back to the way you've always lived. For a lot of people, when it rains on them, their faith is the first thing to fail and it goes right out the window. And so, Jesus is saying to Peter, this is what's critical for you, is that your faith remains strong in this trial. Jesus promised us that you would experience hard times. Now, I, won't, I don't want this to be negative. I'm going to give you the good news, okay? Life is good, and when it's good, we love it. But Jesus promised that in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So, Jesus is promising Peter, you're going to be sifted like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Faith is the key to overcoming any amount of trouble there is. Now, when you enter the trouble, it's too late to build your faith. You got what you got. All right? It's too late. You can't, uh, okay, my wife is going to leave me. Now I need to get my faith built up. Too late, pal. You're living off of what you've got. Okay, what you've developed up to that point is what you're going to use to get through you. So, so when life is good, build your faith. Strengthen your faith. Put your roots down really deep. Draw in. Connect with Christ. Grow stronger so that the next time it rains on you, you have bigger faith. The ultimate rain story is in Job, right? Turn to the book of Job. Job's in the Old Testament. And to most rookies, it's the book of Job. Job here tells us this amazing story. Now, a little background. This is the oldest written piece of literature known to man. Maybe you didn't know that. Nothing older, nothing that is known to man. Uh, no amount of literature from the Byzantine Empire or the Persian Empire or any empire. The book of Job is the first written, recorded record of anything of man. It supersedes Genesis. Okay? Now, in our Bible, Genesis comes first because the Bible does not go chronologically. Okay? If it were to be chronological, then Job would be the first book. Okay? It's the oldest book. And so it's almost as if God is saying, okay, the first thing I need to tell them is this. The story of Job. This story reveals a lot of things. It reveals what God is like what he expects of people, what he does for people. It reveals to us what the devil is like and what he does to people. And it reveals to us the nature of life itself. All right? So, you think, you think about it. Um, the first thing you say to somebody is always a pretty significant thing. So, here's the story. And we'll look at it in verse 1 of chapter 1. There was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. Reminds me of the uh, Wizard of Oz. He was blameless. A man of complete integrity. 
He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500. Okay, the guy's rich. Okay? A lot of stuff. One day, the members of the heavenly court, I'm skipping down to verse 6. Okay, it says how rich Job was. He had kids. He was famous, probably handsome, smart, well-liked, loved. Uh, everybody loved him. It says in, in further chapters that women in the community saw Job and respected him and loved him. Men respected him, wanted his advice and counsel. Great guy. Has it all. Top of the world. Life is good. Rich, famous, everything you would want. Healthy, he's got it all. That's Job. Okay. Then it's, it's almost like the, the curtain comes down, the scene changes in verse 6, and we go to heaven, this heavenly conversation, which sounds an awful lot like what we just read in Luke, right? One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan, not because he didn't know where he was, because God knew where he was. You could read this in another way to say, what have you been up to, okay? What have you been up to, devil? <clears throat> Wanting the devil to confess it, God knew. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth and watching everything that is going on. That tells us a lot about him. It tells us that he has free access to the earth and to heaven. He can enter any realm he chooses at any time he pleases. And free travel, instant travel. The devil isn't in all places at all times like God is, but he has access. So he could be here in Tacoma and decide to go to Atlanta, Georgia, just like that. Okay? Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? And that's a terrible question. Because the devil knew him. I feel much better if he says, no, I never heard of him. Who's he? You want the devil to know who you are? You want to know where you live? I don't think, I don't feel good about that. He knew exactly who Job was. In fact, he describes him. He says, yeah, I know Job. Well, let me tell you about him. He's your favorite. You're protecting him. You gave him all this stuff and he's living large because of it. Look, at, look what you've done for him, God. The devil knows what God has done for you. He can see how God has blessed you and takes note of it. That's scary. And so the devil issues this challenge to God. Verse 11. Reach out and take away everything he has, and he will curse you to your face. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? 
He knew what he was talking about because he'd seen it over and over and over and over and over. And you and I have done the exact same thing. It rains on my little party, on my little outreach. And the first thing I say is, God, what did you do to me? Okay? He knows that that is the way we are wired. The minute one bad thing happens to us, the first response is, God, what are you doing? Raise your hand if you've heard somebody say that about their life. Okay? We all have, right? I don't care who it is. Madonna, Donald Trump, Dennis Rodman. doesn't matter. God is messing me up. The devil knows that. So that's the perfect plan. This is great. This is so easy. Slam dunk. Take away all he has. He'll hate you for it. Implying that Job's faith is weak and shallow. It's based on his money, his health, his fame, his talents, his gifts, and that life is good. That's as deep as his faith goes. And so the devil says... He will surely give it up when you take it away. And so God says, okay, fine. Verse 12, go ahead and take it away. But don't lay a finger on him. Don't hurt him. Don't harm him personally, but take away everything else. And it says, and then Satan left immediately, (laughs) probably skipping on his way with glee to take everything from Job. And that's exactly what he does. It's, it's amazing. It says that uh, the scene ends, curtain goes down, new scene, we're back on earth. And it says, uh, Job's sons and daughters were feasting. And Job was at home praying for him. He was probably thinking this could go bad. And so like a good father, he's praying for his kids. And uh, it says that Job was there in his home. And a messenger came in and says, Oh my gosh, Job, you won't believe this. There was a terrible storm and all your kids were killed. The house fell on them, killed them. Now, you're a parent, okay? If you're a parent, you think about that. The worst possible news, right? There is no worse news than that. The worst possible news. He must have fallen to his knees and crying out. And it says that in this, while this guy was telling him that story, another guy came in and says, guess what? All your cattle's been killed. All your animals have been wiped out. And you're absolutely broken, penniless now. You have nothing. I mean, that's, that would crush anyone. Anyone. Imagine in one fell swoop, your family's wiped out. Everything you own is gone. And then this is Job's response. It's amazing. Look at it here. Verse 20. Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, shaved his head, fell to the ground to worship. And he said this, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And that is when we first get a glimpse of how strong 
Job's faith was. Amazingly strong, deep. Job did not put his faith in his kids. I have seen a lot of people do that. I've seen people do that. In fact, all they can talk about is what their kids have accomplished and how great their kids are and all that I have is who my kids are and blah, blah, blah. Love your children. Care for them. But don't put your faith in them. Put your faith where it matters. Put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Job didn't put his faith in his money. He didn't trust in his money. His heart wasn't captivated by his riches or his wealth or his fame or anything that he had. It didn't have him. And so when it was gone, it didn't rock his world. His faith was in his relationship with God, not in what God had given him or what God could give him. And how many Christians are building their faith upon what God can do for them? God is the really Santa Claus. And if he blesses me and gives me what I want, then I'll serve him. But if he doesn't, forget it deals off. And that's weak, shallow faith. And when it rains on you, you will crumble. So, curtain closes again, go back to heaven, and there is Satan again with God, and he's ticked off. He's like, oh man, it didn't work. <laughs> I guess he has a little more faith than I thought he did. So, but listen, I know mankind... And there's no way he is going to keep this positive attitude if you take away his health. Because I've noticed that inside of man is this powerful, powerful, powerful thing called self-preservation. And man will do anything to spare his own life. Anything. All right? That's why torture works. (laughs) Because they'll tell you anything you want to know. To save my life. And so, uh, God says, all right, you can take his health, but not his life. And so then, I'm not reading it to you because I'm running out of time. So, (laughs) verse 4 of chapter 2. A man will give up everything he has to save his life. And that is true. And so... He immediately leaves the scene, shows up, and uh, touches Job with some sort of bizarre sickness. And you realize this guy just lost his whole family, everything he owns, and now he's sick with some incurable disease. Now, the the picture the Bible paints for us is just absolutely mind-blowing. It says that... Job, he had no place to live. So Job is at the garbage dump. The trash heap of the town, okay? It's where all the people go that are discarded by life, that have no home and may be sick or have leprosy or some disease. And so Job is at the garbage heap, laying in the garbage, oozing pus out of his body. And it's incredibly painful and gross and sick, and so he's taking broken pottery and scraping his skin. And so then his beloved wife comes up, and I've always been hard on her, but, you know, I, I mean, you think about it, she lost all of that too. But so she comes up to him, she says, will you quit this 
positive attitude that you have, just curse God and die, and this will be over with. Isn't that great? And we, we all have those kind of people in our life that when we go through bad times, they just say, just curse God and die. Get this over with. What does he say to her? This is his second reply of faith. Verse 10. But Job replied, You talk like a stupid woman. No, it says foolish, but... Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never accept anything bad? First book ever written to tell us what God is like. Okay? Because God views a rainy day differently than we do. All right? Bad things, we want to get rid of it, get out of it, get away from it, make go away, make a stop. God does not. Now, that brings up another question. What is his problem? Right? I mean... If he's God and he's good, can't he make all the evils in this world go away? Right? Can he stop it? Why does my daughter have cancer? God, you are all-knowing, all-seeing. You are all-powerful. You can make the cancer go away. My daughter did nothing to to be in this kind of suffering. Make it go away. And God does not. And so then we curse him and say, what is his problem? He's not good like he said he is. Now, this is a complex question. And I'm not going to be so simple this morning to say, here's the simple answer. But I will tell you this. If God is going to allow love, then he has to allow the possibility of evil. Because if if I say to you, Love me, and then I make you love me? Is it love? You know, that's the gold digger, right? You know? You're loving me because of my 58 million. Okay? I want you to genuinely love me. And so to genuinely love me means you have to have the opportunity to hate me. And so because God wants to be loved genuinely and in a real way, he has to also allow for evil as a possibility. So she says, curse God and die. And Job says, I walk with God and so I know this to be true of him. We must receive from God both good and bad. The, the Apostle Peter talked about this in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, 5, uh, 1 Peter uh, 4 and verse 12. I'm missing all of these little cues here. I think I have that one. There we go. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Isn't that just how it is? It's like, what in the world? How did this happen to me? As if it's some bizarre thing out of left field. And he says, don't be surprised by that. Life will rain on you. Be prepared. 
prepare for it. Instead, be very glad. Now, this is not trivial. He's not saying, oh, be happy like nothing's ever happened to you. Uh, the Sims family, it's, it's raining on the Sims family. It's our, t- it's our turn. We, we, get to, we get to be rained on right now. And so this past week was a week of enormous amount of tears. Tears every day for every member of the family, all the way to aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and everybody bawling and crying at the grief that we are having to endure. So it doesn't mean my joy is, oh, well, everything's great. You know, my son's dead. (sighs) Not that my my sons aren't dead. (laughs) You know, he's saying the joy comes in the enormous price you pay. Which gives that experience enormous value. When things are costly and they cost you everything they are precious. Amen. You know, we went hiking this one one year, and uh, I'm in the front, and my kids are behind me, and Joy's at the very back. We're walking along, and you hear that screech from your child. You know that as a parent, that screech that is not the screech of, uh, you know, my brother's irritating me, and I'm crying because my feelings got hurt. This is the screech of, my leg is about to come off, okay? This is one of those. And it's the kind that makes your hair stand up the back of your neck. And I spun around and I saw my son there with this massive laceration in his leg. Literally, it was like the the flesh hanging off, the hamburger. You could see all the way the bone. It was gross. And we are two miles in. What am I going to do? He could bleed to death. I mean, it was... Traumatic. It was scary. It was not something you wish on somebody. When we got to the emergency room, eventually, the uh, there was a guy in there getting stitches because he cut his leg with a chainsaw, and he had half as many stitches as my son did. So you know how bad that was. It was gross. And yet, my son and I, to this day, look back on that with a very warmth of heart and a fondness of how he and I got through that trial together. It's become, for him, it's a badge of honor. He's got this massive, cool scar. And for me, it was a moment where God helped us in a time of trouble. See what I mean? It, 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 that's where the value is. And that's what Peter's saying. Hey, he's saying, when you go through these trials, he says... Uh, you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed in all the world. And sometimes that comes much later in life. And I'm out of time and I haven't even given you point one. The Seahawks are going to get murdered today anyway. So don't worry about it if we go late. Um, (laughs) Should we pray for the Seahawks right now, John? The Giants are... Anyway, um, where was I? So this is it. I'll just give you one point, and then we'll pick up here next week. I want to stay on this series until we get it. Because you're going to go through the rain. You are. You are. Every one of us. It's going to rain on you. And it will rain all the way up until your final breath. 
It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. You think that when you're 89 years old, you shouldn't have to have any more trials, right? There should be a law against that. You reach, I think the law should be 40. (laughs) Hit 40, no more, smooth sailing, all's good. It doesn't exist, okay? So I want you to build your faith, be strong, build your faith in Christ, root yourself deep in Him so that when you face the sorrow and the grief, it doesn't destroy you, all right? So here it is. This is number one. Daily. Say it with me loudly. Daily. Say it again. Daily. Really loud. That's the key. That's the key right there. That right there was worth $1,000. You can pay me later. The, The one thing that causes your faith to grow is a daily, a daily regiment of listening to God speak to you daily. Too many people listen to God, speak to them through the word every Christmas, every Easter, every three months, occasionally, when they feel like it, when they're up to it, when they're not busy, maybe when they're so bored, get out the Bible and read it, hoping you'll fall asleep. All right? This is the key. A daily regimen. I was reading an article this past week in um, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, don't I sound cool? I read the Wall Street Journal. And uh, this, I've never read it. This is just a chance. Anyway, I'm reading this article, and it's, a, it's the top 20 or so CEOs of very highly successful corporation. It was Google and Microsoft and others. And they say, okay, what is the key to your success. And every single one of them said the same thing. And that's how they got this article. It was so bizarre. They all said the same thing. They said, we have a daily ritual that we follow that is the key to success. And it is so true. If you have a sip of vodka once a year, it's not really going to do much to you or for you, okay? But if you take a sip every four hours, you will die by the time you're 25. It's the consistency of it that gives it its potency, its power. And when you're in that daily walk with God, daily, every day, Monday, Tuesday, too many folks come on Sunday and then forget about it on Monday and forget about it on Tuesday and forget about it on Wednesday... It's daily. Do you get it? Say daily with me. It's got to be daily. It builds momentum. It's like a freight train. I mean, you put a freight train on a track and you stand in front of it and you can hold it with your hand. But if it's going 60 miles an hour, you could put an entire building in front of that train and it's going to blow right through it. It's got momentum. It's got power. It builds up this enormous power. And so when you're daily, daily, 
daily and listening to God, listening to God, talking back to Him, developing your faith. It grows. It grows stronger and stronger and stronger. And so when the rain comes down on you, your response is, if I perish, I perish. If God, God is for me, who can be against me? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And you'll look like a freak. You'll look like a guy that's out of touch. But you'll have the faith you need to get through the storm of life. It's daily. You get it? Daily? Say it again. Daily. It's daily. It's daily. Can you develop what you need to win the Olympics, let's say it's um, 100 meters. If you run every six weeks, or you run when you feel like it, or how about this, you run when it's only sunny. Are you going to win? You are going to lose, right? You're going to run every single day. Why? Because that's what builds endurance. That's what builds muscles. That's what makes a difference. It's daily. It's daily. It's daily, church. It's daily. How many Christians are here today? I won't make you raise your hand, but I want you to answer my question in your mind. And you let the Holy Spirit speak to you this morning. How many Christians are here today who have been walking with God for a, a, oh, a fair amount of time and still do not have a daily walk. And folks, what that basically means is this. You are in big trouble. Because it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. It starts to rain down on you. And your faith is too weak. I have seen so many Christians face the trials of their life and give up on their faith. I have met people that are absolutely angry, furious, bitter, that hate God because He did not rescue them from their troubles. The key is daily. 